you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we rejoice that you are our help and that your love is steadfast for your people, your church, your bride, your family. And Lord, we pray that as your word is now proclaimed in its native language, in heralding, in announcing, while we sit and listen to good news announced, we pray, Lord, that you would make our ears attentive and that we would be like the sheep of the good shepherd who hear his voice and are turned by it. And I pray that you would do this work in us in the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, would you turn to Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I just want to publicly thank Jordan and Caleb for so faithfully filling the pulpit uh, and proclaiming the word of Christ over us. What a great delight and what rich food they have brought us week after week. So I'm going to thank the Lord and I want to thank those men for their faithful service as shepherds of this church. Thank you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to just read the first five verses. I know if you got the email and the outline, it says that we're going further, but we're only going to verse 5. Galatians 3, 1 to 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Thus far the word of the Lord. I want to ask you uh, this question here in relation to this passage. What do you do when the gospel honeymoon is over? Where do you turn when the excitement and even the sweet calm or rest, which you had when you first believed in Christ, when that initial sense, that initial excitement and, and even calm and rest and joy, when that is gone, that starting gates kind of energy when you turn to the new phase in your pilgrimage of faith, the endurance phase, when you enter Saskatchewan, I would say. And the reason I say that is is when I I finished school, Alana and I moved to Alberta to begin my pastoral ministry, leaving bucket loads of family behind. Seven years we were gone from friendly Manitoba, and and not that it's the most important thing, but we did leave both of our mothers cooking and baking behind in Manitoba when we were in Alberta. And that meant that we would travel back to Winnipeg very regularly, or as regularly as we were able to. And so the initial bit of that road trip, even before it started, was quite hectic and quite exciting. You know, I got to, you know, get the things at church ready. We got to make sure the the, uh, van has an oil change. We got to pack up the kids and get everything ready to go. And then when we get into the car, it's, it's a little hectic as well. It's pretty exciting. Uh, we got to get into the, in, into the car before dawn because we want to get and, and have a meal before, uh, before, um, before supper time. We want to get there in good time. And so we would leave our driveway and, and uh, we'd, we'd go down our little street. Then we'd hit 
Main Street in, in Innisfail, and then we'd hit the highway. Oh, and then this sense of rest and peace, and it's also excitement washes over us, and we're driving down the highway in Alberta, and we see the, the foothills, the beautiful foothills. Where it's exciting. It's wonderful. The rolling hills. We drive past beautiful Bowdoin Penitentiary. It's fantastic. So we're on the road. There's this excitement. We can almost smell Baba and, and Grandma's cooking. And then we get to Saskatchewan. And that excitement is gone. It's now just taking forever. What is that? What is the sound the engine is making? Is that normal? Was it always making that noise? How much is this going to cost me? What are we going to do if we break down? This excitement has faded. We began well, but now finishing is not nearly as enjoyable. And this is kind of the sense that you get with the Galatian church. They heard the gospel of, of Israel's God, Israel's Messiah, the promised son of Israel, this, the, the, the promised son of Israel's great King David. There's this Messiah, he's come. They heard that he died for their sins and that he was raised from the dead and they believed it. They heard the gospel and they believed. They, they heard eyewitness testimony. They heard of the ancient prophecies and they believed that it was not just for people's sin that Jesus had died and risen, but for their sin. They entrusted their souls to him to reconcile them to God. And they absolutely knew that they had not earned their salvation at all. They would have laughed at you if you would have said, did you earn this? They were straight pagans living as pagans do. And they hear the gospel of Israel's Messiah and they believe and they are reconciled to God. They would have been the first to say, oh, this is by grace and we only received it through faith. They knew that they came to the table with nothing but guilt in their hands. They knew that if they were going to be accepted by God, declared righteous, then it would have to be Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone credited to them. See, they couldn't point to any length of time that they had gone to church or you know, served in Sunday school or you know, there was a long time between their visits to the temple prostitutes or it's been a long time since I've been sober. They had none of that. All they had was their bankruptcy and God's declaration that Christ was perfectly righteous and that that righteousness is credited to you if you believe in him. And so they believed that and they began to live the life of children of God. Enjoy the gift of life as the children of the God of the universe. The God of Israel who made and governs all things. They they went from guilty to righteous. They went from being enemies of God to dear children of God. They went from uh, facing condemnation to now knowing at the end of their life they will receive Christ's reward because he received their condemnation. They went from being slaves of sin to this odd experience of now enjoying and being compelled to obey the Savior who loved them and gave himself up for them. And then at some point, the honeymoon ended. We can see this. Perhaps it was when the sweet life of God's child ceased to feel new. 
And now you'd add the adjective ordinary to it. It's just ordinary. Perhaps it was the first or second or third time that a man stumbled in sin that he thought he would never do as a new man. Maybe it was the first, second, or third time that a woman felt a lack of confidence in the Lord. Maybe a lack even that God was even hearing her prayers. She never felt that before since becoming a Christian. Now, now, now what? Perhaps it was the first, second, or third time that they heard a supposedly Christian teacher telling them that there was more to belonging to God. Oh, there's something deeper that will give you more reason for confidence if you do these things. Someone who knew the, better, the Bible better than they did and perhaps even lived a more respectable life. Perhaps it was the pressure to be sorted in the categories that the world was telling them. In any case, they found themselves vulnerable targets to the teaching of the Judaizers. Now, these Judaizers, as, as uh, Jordan and Caleb were teaching, they were teaching a justification. And now, by now, you should know justification means being declared righteous. God looking at you and saying, I declare you, you are officially, legally righteous. So they were teaching a justification by faith in the gospel and your obedient works. And this was given an audience in the Galatians because they were in their weary, confused condition of Saskatchewan, you might say. As they struggled with continuing, with finishing after the lovely excitement and restful souls of the beginnings of the Albertan foothills. And so they take the bait. And they take their focus off of the finished work of Christ ever so slightly, and they put the focus on their own works, thinking that they had made an improvement. There's an improvement now that God is going to be even more pleased. If he was pleased with me and trusting the gospel, oh, is he going to be even more pleased? Am I even more saved? Am I even more justified? Something that would make their standing with God more sure. It gave them more reason to trust that God would answer their prayers, that God loved them rather than saw them as enemies. And rather than getting applauded for this improvement by Paul, they get a spanking, which takes us to our first point. Confidence in your works is foolish, and it is pleasing to Satan. Confidence in your works is foolish, and it is pleasing to Satan. So verse 1, we get this from verse, verse 1. Hopefully you can see this with me. Oh, foolish Galatians, says Paul, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So the Galatians had been bewitched by demonic teaching rather than increasing their devotion to God. They thought they had increased their devotion to God. They become less demonic, less satanic less pleasing to Satan, and in fact, they had gone the other direction. They were dabbling with devotion to Satan, Paul is saying. They were bewitched. Now, you know specifically from Jordan and Caleb's working through Galatians that one of the things that was being required as an added bit of confidence that God heard your prayers and that you were forgiven was for the males to be circumcised. And so you say, well, this is evil to require this? Didn't God ever even require this at some point? If it's evil, how could God have required it? Now, that's a great question to deal with that question. Because at some point, before Christ had come, God did require male circumcision 
for those families that trusted in the promises of God. He required it and also obedience to the ceremonial laws of Moses. Paul's going to get more into that in a bit, but there's two big things that that I think we can remember and consider when we look at that question. First is this. These things never justified a person before God. A person was never made right in God's sight by being circumcised. Never. Not in the Old Testament before Jesus came. Anyone who was saved, anyone who truly belonged to God, anybody who could claim God's promises, anyone who was forgiven, anybody who had a spotless record before God, was had that by faith in God's gospel promises, not by their obedience to these commands. Even these commands that God had commanded, these extra ones, circumcision and the ceremonial, sacrificial laws, the food laws, etc. Second thing is that God did, of course, require them. It's true. Male circumcision and obedience to the cleanliness and ceremonial laws, food and clothing and that sort of thing. He definitely did. And there's much more to be said about these things, about why he did that. But the main summary of all these ceremonies that Israel had to perform, and even male circumcision is this. Here's the summary. It's a good thing to write down if you're writing things down. There will come from your flesh an heir, a son, who will cleanse his people of their uncleanness, of their guilt, of their sin, and who will give them circumcised hearts. This is what all these things put them together were saying. There will come from your flesh an heir who will do these things. I wonder if you noticed the tense of that phrase. The tense of that. Perhaps the middle school kids here are going to be able to help us out here. What tense was that in? Was it past tense, present tense, or future tense? I'm going to say it again, see if you can identify. Past, present, future tense. What was that little phrase that summarizes all these ceremonies. There will come from your flesh and heir a son who will cleanse his people of their uncleanness, of their guilt, of their sin, and who will give them, uncir- or give them circumcised hearts. Past, present, future. 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 There will come a son. So these ceremonial and cleanliness laws were meant by God as a proclamation of faith that the Messiah had not yet come, but he will come. So continuing to require these extra ceremonies, circumcision and the cleanliness laws, so continuing to require these ceremonies was a proclamation that their sin had not yet been atoned for, that the Christ had not yet come, and they're still waiting for him to be born to remove their sin. And so it would kind of be like all these ceremonies and, and, and the, the, the male circumcision and the sacrifices and the, the food laws and the cleanliness laws and the clothing laws. It would kind of be, be, be like Snow White singing after married and living happily ever after to the prince. It would be kind of like Snow White singing, someday my prince will come. Snow White, I'm not sure if you've noticed this. He's already come. But it was actually worse than that. A person's attachment to those ceremonial laws demonstrated that they actually were never using them properly to begin with. They were were actually trusting that God justified them by those laws, which is why there was this freaking out when God said, no, no more, no more of these things. 
These were proclamations the Messiah would come and had not yet come yet, but he has now come. And so if they were clinging to these things as proof or as, as the reason that God is going to make them declared right and they'd be forgiven, spare them from hell, well, then God says, let go of those things. And they couldn't let go of it because they were pretty sure, not all of them, but they were pretty sure that they were kind of justified by God, at least in part, by these things. So it is a wicked thing to teach these things because it is denying Christ. I want us to see that this is a spiritual battle. Paul seems to indicate that very clearly. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Okay, it's a spiritual battle. And let us be very clear. We are in a spiritual battle, a very spiritual battle, a battle that requires armor, a battle with high stakes, a battle with spiritual forces of evil, of the devil and demons who hate the Lord and who hate his church and they want to destroy the church. And if the demons and the devil can't destroy the church, they would love to rob us of confidence that is ours in Christ Jesus. So if they can't undo your adoption as daughter or son of God, then at the very least what they would like to do is to make that daughter of God worried maybe she's not. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe the price hasn't fully been paid. So he likes to bewitch even the people of God even though he holds no power over the people of God. Now, we are fools to think this is not a serious battle. It is a very serious battle. We have to be well-armed. We have to be well-prepared and on the ready at all times. Or we will suffer wound after wound after wound after wound. But dear brothers and sisters, the devil has been defeated. Christ destroyed him at the cross. And now Christ is ransacking the devil's kingdom, taking wagon loads of treasure out of the kingdom. And the plunder that he is carting out of that kingdom of Satan's house is the people of all nations. It is the Dutch and Jamaican and German and Chinese and Filipino and Mexican and Colombian and British and Scottish and Canadian and Haitian and Brazilian believers who were one with one little word out of the mouth of Christ, the word of the gospel. When they heard it and believed. I want you to notice that Paul's approach to this battle, he recognizes it's a battle. He'll get there in Ephesians as well. I want you to notice that Paul's approach to this battle is not shouting at Satan. He doesn't write an epistle to Satan. <laughs> the letter of Paul to Satan and the demons. No, he writes a letter to the Galatians. It's not Satan who needs to hear the gospel. It's those who are being bewitched by him. And that wins the battle, Paul seems to think. This is how we are well armed. Not by chanting Bible verses at demons like holy witches and wizards nonsense, but by hearing and remembering, considering and treasuring and believing the words of God and scripture. This is how God's word is our helmet and shield and sword and breastplate and shoes and belt. And I'm sure I forgot something. It's our souls that need to hear the word of God in this battle, not Satan. He knows these things. It is us who need the constant reminder and medicine of the word of God to overcome. Satan has no power 
over those in Christ. The bewitching is trickery, yes. Pleasing to Satan, yes. But it is trickery. This is why the Galatians are called fools, not victims. Beloved fools, yes, but fools. In the lead up to World War II, and of course during the world, the World War II, large portions of the churches of Germany were taken up with the hysteria of Hitler and the philosophy and excitement and the fine-sounding arguments of the Nazi movement. They incorporated these teachings into their preaching. Not all of them. They, they argued for Nazism with pieces of Scripture. They refused to call Hitler's actions wicked. Now, not all. We can certainly rejoice at the examples of men like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a preacher put to death for his opposition to Nazism. But many, many churches and pastors fell to this. Now, after the war, a large group of these preachers gathered, and they discussed how, how in the world they could have been complicit, seeing now how contrary to the gospel that Nazism was. How is it? The gospel says this, Nazism that. How in the world could we have been so complicit? And so men spoke passionately about the powers of Satan over them, how they were essentially controlled. They were like drugged unwittingly against their will by spiritual powers beyond their control. Oh, look at the power of Satan over us. Look what he made us do. And in that meeting, a man stood up and addressed those preachers calmly and said this, Brothers, we have been so very foolish. John chapter, or in 1 John chapter 5, John tells us that the devil touches, touches none who belong to Christ and that we should keep ourselves from idols, the works of Satan. And teaching that Jesus' death and resurrection and your obedience is how you get into heaven is a work of Satan. And this is the tone that Paul strikes here. You have been foolish. You have forgotten and moved from the plainest of plain gospel teachings. This is not a spell, a mystical event. This was a foolish complicity with evil, and you should have clearly seen this if you were paying attention. What does he say? What's, what was he saying? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's saying this was posted like a billboard for you. A public notice made very plain. Jesus died and rose. That's the answer to the false teachers. Jesus died and rose. That should have killed the threat immediately. Jesus died and rose. He's not saying that the solution to this attack of Satan was an obs obscure verse in Leviticus. And only if you knew the original Hebrew, you would have found out the answer to this, this spiritual spell that was cast over you. Tracing numerology patterns. Oh, if only you had memorized the entire Bible in the original languages. No. Jesus Christ died for your sins, and rose from the dead. Most of these people probably never held a Bible in their hands, even the Old Testament in their hands. Maybe they had never read Leviticus. But you know what they did have? Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. This is what they had. 
And this was the solution to these very complicated, not very complicated, actually, spiritual attacks. Even the simplest presentation of the gospel would have been felled by these attacks. As Luther sings in a mighty fortress, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what is that little word? Jesus Christ was crucified for your sin and rose from the dead. So your works, Old Testament works, New Testament works, do not justify you. Christ's life and death and resurrection justifies you. Dear brothers and sisters, when Christ was suffering on the cross for your punishment, he did not cry out, I've done my part, here's to hoping they'll do theirs. No, he cried out, it is finished. My bride is justified. Her debt is paid by me in full. Her standing with God is not dependent on even one little penny she gives, but paid in full by me in her place. I am her justification. The justification of those who trust in my death and resurrection from the dead alone and not by their works. First point. Second point is this Christ is both the author and perfecter of your faith. Verse, uh, verse 2 and 3. Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun, there it is, by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? so common to have to come to faith rejoicing that Christ has forgiven you by the purchase of Christ's blood. It's so common to, to be excited by that and to have this newness. To be so confident it's true simply because Jesus rose from the dead. That's how I know it's true. Jesus rose from the dead. But then once a believer to turn to things which you do as your confidence before God. But Christ's sacrifice and grace is not just what gets you into his kingdom. It's what keeps you there. It's not just enough to get you around the family table. It is what keeps you there. Your confidence in God's affection for you and your love for you. Think about this. How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that I belong to him? How do I know that I am forgiven or that he hears my prayers? I wonder if you've ever thought those things or felt those things. I wonder. I wonder if God is really hearing your prayers, if you really are forgiven. The question is, when you were first saved, likely your answer would have been because Christ died for my sins and you rose from the dead. I believe in him. But as it goes on, what is very common is that you will turn now to considering the things that you have done in addition to that. This is foolish bewitchment. This is, this is there's, there's two general ways in which that this happens. Two, two different effects, but the same problem. Where a man comes to faith and he's just he's confident in Christ because of his, Christ's death and resurrection. I am I'm forgiven because Christ died for my sins. But as he goes on, he starts to accomplish some things. 
He starts to gain a good reputation in the church, maybe to get some leadership in the church. Maybe he raises a good family. He has a really good business. It does very, very well. And he does this by honest principles. He's following the Lord. He has all of these things. Never looks at pornography. Doesn't lie. He's, he's a good man. And so he, for his answer to why God would hear his prayer, he's, his confidence that God hears his prayer, he considers these things. Oh, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Look at these things I've done. And he becomes so proud. So trust, yeah, yeah, no, he hears my prayers because I trust in Christ. And I'm also confident. It adds to my confidence that I've been pretty good. And this is wicked. But the other effect that it can have is an individual comes to faith in Christ, is confident in her salvation because Christ died for her sins. How do you know? How do you know you're forgiven? Jesus died for my sins. My sins are forgiven. Jesus died. How do you know? You'll be raised from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in that. And as time goes on, she is reminded daily of her weakness and her sin. She's more honest in her heart than this other man. But if her confidence is in her accomplishments before God, in her righteousness since becoming a Christian, oh, that dear sister is so crushed by the weight of these things and has no confidence to approach God as we are instructed to do. She is crushed by these things and doesn't rest in Christ. Dear Christian of the first kind, you are a fool. You are stupid. Repent. You aren't as good as you think. And you are insulting Christ. Repent and trust in Christ alone for your confidence and standing and affection from God. Dear Christian of the second kind, rest in Christ. Rest in his affection and his accomplishments for you. They are enough. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness and your sins, even those you're committing, you've committed after coming to Christ, they too were nailed to the cross and, and God punished Christ for them. So there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is the author of your faith. Oh, dear sister, he's also the perfecter of your faith. Set your eyes on him to endure with joy. The affection of God for Christ is the affection he has for you when you start, when you're in Saskatchewan, and when you finish. So dear church, do not believe those people who in the middle of Saskatchewan promise you something richer, deeper, a better confidence, whether that's a religious experience or a new teaching or a new way of identifying a Christian. Dear brothers and sisters, it is my pleasure to publicly placard Christ crucified for your sins and raised from the dead for your justification. Paul gives on to give a, a, a few simple reasons from Scripture for these beloved idiots to have confidence in Christ alone. It is essentially Paul uh, dealing with, use the illustration of, of, of a few engineers, bridge-building engineers, and, and they build bridges, and they know math. They're really good at math. They know that one plus one is two, and two plus two is four, and three times three is nine. I better stop there before I embarrass myself. They know these things. 
But all of a sudden, there's this groundswell around them and society, and there's this pressure from other engineers, engineers maybe who taught them. People have been engineers longer than them. We're like, no, for this bridge in particular, you have to ignore the fact that two plus two is four. In fact, treat it that two plus two is five. And these engineers are like, I don't know. It seems to say two plus two is four. That, I'm pretty sure of that. I'm confident of that. I learned that at the beginning of my engineering training. Oh, but the pressure mounts. Oh, they're having parades for people who celebrate two plus two is five. They're rewarding them. They're firing people who don't believe in these things. And so these people are like, well, I, it, I mean, it looks like two plus two is four, but you know what? Maybe let's build it. I just, you know, I have a, I have a feeling to let's build the bridge two plus two is five. And so they build it according to these standards. And then the chief engineer comes to them after this bridge is completed and people are beginning to walk on it. And he spanks them. And he gives them simple reasons. Look, your mistake was not a complex mistake. This is a very simple thing. And so this is what Paul does. He takes some scripture. We're going to only go in a couple of them, but he'll go on, and next week we'll go on to more and more clear, simple explanations from scripture. Just like one question, destruction of bad arguments. And this is our third point. All those who have faith in Christ have the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3, 4 to 5. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you? Do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Don't be fools here, says Paul. This is a very simple argument. A child could follow this argument. We have children here. You can follow this argument. It, it kills the argument of these really fine-sounding Judaizers. Here's, here's, here's the question. You don't need a great a bit of knowledge to know that this is a foolish thing. All you need is two plus two is four, essentially, in gospel terms. Here's the question. When you received the Holy Spirit, did, had you kept God's laws yet? And the Galatians were like, well, no. When and how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, the gospel was preached, okay? Christ Jesus died for our sins, risen from the dead. The gospel was preached and we believed. We got the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith. Paul is referring to a historical event. He's referring to the the events recorded in the book of Acts. Promised by the prophets in the Old Testament long ago. When the new covenant would arrive, when the Holy Spirit would not be just restricted to those heirs within Israel, but would expand toward all the Gentile nations as well. Anybody, anybody who called on the name of the Lord would be saved in Israel, yes, outside of Israel. And so the apostles were promised that they'd be eyewitnesses of this. So they would be able to see things that you normally can't see. I normally can't see, I could never see actually, and neither can you, when a person gets the Holy Spirit. I can't see a person receiving the Holy Spirit. You can't either. So we're, we're looking for fruit, right? But we can't actually see this. But the Lord set it up in such a way that the apostles, because they were called to be eyewitnesses, would be able to see this. How did he do that? Signs and wonders accompanied the apostolic ministry. And so the first bit is at Pentecost, you see the Holy Spirit comes in this visible way. To all the Jews? No, actually, 
Only a specific group. Which group? Only the group that believed in Jesus. Oh, okay, so he's separating those in in Israel who have God and those who don't. And what's the marker? Those who have faith in the Messiah, that he died for their sins and rose from the dead. Oh, but then it keeps going. He also promised that it would expand to from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, the ends of the earth. And as this happens, read the book of Acts, it's fantastic. You have the gospel coming to these peoples, those concentric circles. And as it reaches each of those concentric circles, well, you have Judea, so you have, and then you have Jim, and Samaria. And then the same thing happens. The apostles can witness, oh, the Holy Spirit is also going to people who are familiar with the, the, with, with the Old Testament, familiar with the laws of God. Maybe they aren't Jews, but they, they love these things. And oh, they're getting saved as well. They have the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? And then it reaches its peak. It reaches straight pagans. They've never heard of the God of Israel. They've never done anything righteous in the eyes of God. And they're getting the Holy Spirit. So Paul is pointing to this fact. When the Gentiles got the gospel... When when they got the Holy Spirit, what had they done? Nothing. Nothing. They had faith. So they were marked by faith and with the Holy Spirit. That was a historical proof. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we're not going to be asking you for your confidence. When you reheard the gospel, were you able to do miracles? No, no, no. (laughs) The apostles are gone there need to be eyewitnesses of the Spirit entering a new era. That's gone. But we can look back to the same events, actually. You can ask this. Hey, when the gospel came to Galatia and people received the Holy Spirit, had they done any good works? No. Okay, well, then you can have confidence that faith is enough for you to have the Holy Spirit as well. So that's a historical proof from, from Scripture he also, brings up, he also brings up suffering. Did you notice that? Have you suffered these things in vain? And this is, this is essentially his argument. When you first heard the gospel, you believed. And you were persecuted. Aren't you kind of surprised that you didn't give up your faith at that point? What can explain that? Do you think you did that? You think that was you holding on to Christ? No, that was the Holy Spirit keeping and holding you. This is his argument. The apostles in other books of the Bible will use this as, as confidence boosting as well. Brothers and sisters, your faith is real. Why? It endures even through suffering. Now, you're not saved by enduring suffering. You are added to Christ by faith. But that suffering proves that you have genuine faith because it lasts even through suffering. They received the Holy Spirit before they had done anything righteous in God's eyes. So in every era of church history, there have always been men praying on the church. Especially people just coming out of that newness, that newness of Christian walk. And they're now into that steady, ordinary sweetness of being a forgiven child of God, living an ordinary life that is very pleasing to God. 
And so these men and women prey on these Christians, and they tell them that perhaps, well, perhaps you don't have the Spirit of God, or at least not the full deal, you know. Oh, there's, there's more than just living an ordinary life as a forgiven and adopted child of God. Oh, there's more. Oh, oh, that's all you have? You're just living an ordinary life as an adopted child of God? That's all you have? Oh, that's, oh, that's too bad. So whether it's charismatic signs and wonders or circumcision or the prosperity gospel or liberal change the world salvation by works, which a lot of churches are embracing now, you're not really a Christian unless you're really working to change the world. That's how you can be sure you're a Christian. Really, really sure. In each generation, men creep into the church and get people to wonder if simple faith in the public proclamation of Christ crucified and risen is sufficient for a person to delight in the sweet gift of the Holy Spirit. Dear Christian, there is no way to become more of an heir of God or to be more forgiven or even one whose justification is worthy of more confidence because you, if you are an heir, you become and remain an heir the way that all sinners do. Christ paid for it and you receive his qualifications by faith as a gift. Now, to be sure, there are some Christians who have more confidence than others do. But it's more confidence in what Christ has accomplished in the cross, not by adding more accomplishments to be confident in. Some Christians enjoy their sonship more than others do. But that's not because they have more sonship. It's because the Lord has transformed their hearts more and more to delight in what was always true. You have the gift that there is no greater gift. You are a child of God with Christ's credentials. So it's not that they have more sonship benefits to enjoy, but they are enjoying the same benefits that each son or daughter of God has. Some take little or no time to delight in the life of sonship because they're still trying to delight in the foolish notions of life as a stranger of God, independent of God, or a competitor of God. To walk as a forgiven child of God, even in a world that's passing away and that's mixed with suffering, in a world that treats you like a stranger, this is sweeter, dear Christian, sweeter than all the world will promise you. And it's sweeter than all these Stupid faith extra plus Holy Spirit plus all these works things teachers are teaching you. It's sweeter than that. And in fact, we can kind of feel sorry for them while also condemning their teaching. Sorry because they don't seem to grasp just how sweet and rich and wonderful and delightful and sure is the love for us of God in Jesus Christ. Just to walk a life Boring or even painful in the sight of the world. But knowing that God is your father and always will be and that your sins are forgiven and that you enjoy Christ's relationship with the father because he suffered for your relationship with the father on the cross. Dear Christian, there's nothing sweeter, nothing more sure than to receive Christ's righteousness and corresponding sonship with the father by faith. Faith alone. 
That is the foolishness to think that there's something more sure than Christ's sacrifice. And so we do what Paul does to the Galatians. When you are worried if your sins are forgiven, you're worried if God hears your prayers, you're worried if God loves you or knows you, ask yourself simply this, did Jesus die for my sins? And did he rise from the dead? And did he promise that all who trust in him are sons and daughters of God? Yes. Then no matter how I feel right now, he hears my prayers, I am forgiven, he does love me, and I will endure. That is the confidence we have. There is no greater confidence. If your faith is in Christ, faith that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead to reconcile you to God, you trust him, not just to forgive you, but to give you new life as a daughter or son, then you belong not to the plastic table in the basement with disposable cups and plates and utensils, but at the main wooden family table with the expensive place settings. Christ purchased your place there. And he doesn't, he's not just the author, but the finisher of your faith. He doesn't just seat you there, but he keeps you there. His merits are not just what gets you there. They're always the merits required to stay there, to eat the whole meal, all the rich food. So when in the rest and excitement of the Albertan foothills, as some of you are, just coming to faith in Christ, or when driving through the endurance road in Saskatchewan, all the way to the wedding feast, at your family table at the end of the long journey. Brothers and sisters, it would be so wonderful. It is so wonderful to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to celebrate this promise of God. And this promise, this visible promise made by God, the cup and the bread, this is a visible promise that God makes to all who have faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his promise is this. His body was for you, and his blood was spilled for you. And it is more than enough to get you around the marriage feast table and to keep you there forever and ever. And so God is making a promise to you, dear Christians, with this. And by eating it, more than making a promise to God, you are saying, I believe his promise that Christ died for my sins and he rose from the dead. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward as we hand out the supper.